continuing our walk through the Psalms, and we come tonight to Mark, Psalm 74. Psalm 74 uh, bears the inscription, a maskil of Asaph, and it reads as follows. O God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance, and this Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Turn your footsteps toward the perpetual ruins. The enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. Your adversaries have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own standards for signs. It seems as if one had lifted up his axe in a forest of trees, and now all its carved work they smash with hatchet and hammers. They have burned your sanctuary to the ground. They have defiled your dwelling place, the dwelling place of your name. They said in their heart, let us completely subdue them. They have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. How long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand, from within your bosom, destroy them? Yet God is my king from of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You broke open springs and torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have established all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, that the enemy has reviled and a foolish people has spurned your name. Do not deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your afflicted forever. Consider the covenant, for the dark places of the land land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the oppressed return dishonored. Let the afflicted and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, and plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you all day long. Do not forget the voice of your adversaries, the uproar of those who rise against you, which ascends continually. Father, uh, this is a psalm filled with difficult questions and wondering why uh, you do what you do sometimes. As we hear the voice of the psalmist and consider his questions and the difficulties that we face sometimes in our own lives, pray that you give us help tonight. Give us some answers tonight. Teach us to pray tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read at the very beginning, Psalm 74 is inscribed as a maskil of Asaph. And we talked briefly about Asaph last week. We mentioned that he was a worship leader in Israel. Obviously, he was a writer of psalms. And he was appointed to these tasks as worship leader, hymn leader, chief musician, if you will, by King David. 
And so we're not surprised to find this man appointed as worship leader by King David with his name at the head of this psalm and others as well. But as we read on into Psalm 74, we might be a bit confused because the psalm is attributed to Asaph, who lived and wrote in the days of David, and yet the psalm itself seems clearly to describe a period much later in time, namely the Babylonian captivity of Jerusalem, which took place many generations after David. I think you probably heard the echoes of Nebuchadnezzar's footsteps and his horsemen, even as we read, for instance, verse 3, we read that the city was in ruins. And in verse 4, the enemies had set up their own banners in God's temple. Verses 5 and 6, that they'd chopped up all the artwork in the temple. And verse 7, that they'd burned it to the ground. Surely those descriptions there portray for us none other than the sacking of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians toward the end of the Old Testament period. And I say to you that that creates a bit of a dilemma. How can this be a psalm of Asaph who lived during the reign of David and yet it describes the destruction of Jerusalem which took place hundreds of years after David? Well, I suppose there are at least two possibilities for that. The first is that it's possible that Asaph wrote this psalm prophetically, that he looked ahead, seer that he was, prophet that he was, and saw the fall of Jerusalem in his mind's eye and penned a psalm that would be apropos for the people who would live in that day when it came to pass. The Old Testament, of course, is filled with that kind of literature, isn't it? With prophets foretelling things and sometimes even speaking of them as though they were already happening, though they are well into the future. And this may be another stunning example of that kind of prophetic foretelling. It's also possible, though, that this psalm was actually written during the time of the Babylonian terror, not by Asaph himself, but by an unnamed psalmist, who very intentionally wrote in the style and the tradition of Asaph, and who therefore labeled this psalm a psalm or a masculine of Asaph, not to designate the author of the psalm, but to designate the school of poetry to which it belonged, the school or the portion of the psalms to which it fit in. We might compare, if that's what's going on, we might compare that to the way we use the phrase Elizabethan English. When we refer to a work of literature as being written in Elizabethan English, we understand that we're not saying that it was actually written by Queen Elizabeth, but that it was written in the style, the linguistic style of English that was popular in Elizabeth's day. And that may be the case with this psalm. It may not have been written by Asaph himself, but the poet, the psalmist, may have intentionally written it in the style using the same imagery that Asaph had made popular in his own psalms. In either case, what seems clear here is that this psalm was written in hard times, right? It was written either during or for those Old Testament days when the Babylonians burned the temple of God to the ground, leveled Jerusalem's walls, chased the people outside of the city, and carted them away into exile in Babylon. This was written 
for those days when the people of God saw all that was precious to them carved up like so many trees in a logging camp. Their houses knocked over, the house of God burned and chopped to the ground, and in some cases their families irreparably damaged and loved ones killed as well. And then those who remained were carried away and went for many, many years, verse 9, without the words of a prophet, without any apparent revelation from God. And in the midst of that period of desolation, probably towards the beginning of it, the psalmist seems to be writing as though he were in Jerusalem, but sometime in the midst of that period of difficulty and desolation, the psalmist records for us two questions that were uppermost in the people's minds. And those two questions are, why and how long? Why, Lord, and how long? Listen as those questions hang heavily in the air in this psalm. Verse 1, O God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? And then verse 10, How long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? Verse 11, Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Why, Lord? And how long, Lord? Those are the questions that the psalmist is asking. And so this psalm is a reminder that for better or for worse, God's people do sometimes find themselves asking those kinds of questions, don't they? Why? How long? Haven't you asked those questions? Some of you may be asking them even now in your life. And I think Psalm 74 is here to teach us that that is not uncommon for the people of God, that we would go through times that seem to push us to ask those questions. And I think Psalm 74 is probably also here to teach us that there is a right way to ask such questions of the Lord. We may sometimes think it inappropriate, even presumptuous or disrespectful, to ask God, why is this happening to me? Or how long is this going to go on? And of course, there is a way that those questions can be all wrong. If they're asked in an accusing tone, if they're asked with a bitter heart, if they're asked in self-righteousness as though I deserve better, there is a way that asking God why can become a finger poked into his chest, an accusation that he's being unfair or unconcerned or unloving or, or what have you. And we must be aware of that kind of questioning. But here in Psalm 74, I think we see something different. I think these questions are asked in a different tone of voice with a different heartbeat behind them. Here, the psalmist asks these questions, Why, Lord? How long, Lord? In relation to God's own honor. How long will you allow your name to be dragged through the mud? That's what this psalm is really asking at its most root level. After all, he says in verse 2, This is your congregation that you're allowing to suffer like this. Verse 4, it's your meeting place that they're destroying. Verse 7, it's your sanctuary that they burn to the ground. Verse 18, it's your name that the enemy is reviling. And not least of all, Lord, we, we ourselves who are suffering are the sheep of your pasture. We're your people. 
So you're the one who's suffering here, Lord. Why are you allowing this to happen? What have we done? Why do you seem so angry with us? And how long until you arise and scatter your enemies? And I think in this case, those are perfectly legitimate questions. When they're asked, not in an accusing tone, not out of a sense that I deserve better from you, God, but out of a legitimate confusion or concern as to why God would allow his people and therefore his name to suffer so much without rising to their aid. Why, Lord? How long is it going to be like this, Lord? These were understandable questions during those days of suffering and exile. And there are periods during the life of the individual Christian and during the life of the church where they're understandable as well whether we're talking about an individual church or the larger church in a city or nation, there are times when we probably ought to find ourselves asking these kinds of questions. I think in terms of the larger church in the world, we should probably be asking them right now, especially in terms of the church in our land. God, why? Why does the church in America seem so powerless in the face of our culture. Yes, there are millions of people in pews on Sunday, but we seem to be making less and less of an impact on the culture, Lord. Unrighteousness in our culture is growing from bad to worse. Things that would have been once unthinkable are now applauded on TV and the Internet. The Bible is viewed with less and less respect. Atheism is on the rise in our country, Lord. Churches are resorting to gimmicks just to get people through the doors. Commitment levels are shallow. Doctrinal confusion is at an all-time high. Other nations are now sending missionaries to us. Why is this happening, Lord? What has happened to your church and how long until you revive us again? I think those are legitimate questions to ask in the place in which we live, in the culture in which we live. And not only on a broad national scale, but closer to home as well. We might ask, Lord, why is it that the closer one gets to the center of our city, the smaller the churches seem to become? Why, Lord, are there more and more church buildings in our city that are boarded up or turned into stores or ice cream shops? Why aren't we making more of an impact on our community in Pleasant Ridge? How long, Lord, until you revive us again? I think Psalm 74 teaches us that it's right to ask these kinds of questions when it seems that God's people are languishing and they are not what they ought to be and therefore God's name is suffering as a result of it. The the legitimate question is, why? How long? And As I said, there may be times in our own individual lives with our own personal struggles and trials where we should ask that question as well. Lord, I am not what I once was. As we read in Psalm 42, I used to be a leader. I used to go along leading the people and singing. I used to have joy in the Lord, and it's gone. Lord, why is this happening? How long until you get a hold of me? How long until things change in my life? Why and how long? But let me remind you briefly that when we ask God a question like that, we better be prepared for a truthful answer. Why is this happening, Lord? Well, I believe that the psalmist questions God in Psalm 74, and he already knows the answer. But we may not always know the answer. I believe that the psalmist questions here 
surely moved God's heart to pity his people. And that's the main point of the psalm to which we'll return in a moment. But I also know that the psalmist realized that the answers to his questions, were God to have voiced them, probably would have made him squirm in his seat a little bit. Had God really given him the full answer to why is it the way it is, it wouldn't have felt real good. Israel was in this predicament for a good reason, weren't they? Because of their sin, their idolatry, their forgetfulness of God, their self-reliance, and so on. And the church in our country and our, our city and even our own church, we may find ourselves squirming too if we really considered the whys of some of our difficulties. So if we're going to ask God why, let's be prepared for the bold truth. But that said, that's not really what this psalm is about. This isn't a psalm about God's accusations against his people, though he could have made many of them. This is a psalm really about God's faithfulness to his people in spite of all that was wrong with them. That's where the psalmist lingers. We don't We don't get God's reply here. We don't get God smacking him on the back of the hand. We don't get God telling him all the things that are wrong. What we hear from the psalmist is this constant sense that he knows that beneath all that's wrong, God is faithful. That's what the psalm is really about. The psalmist understood that there were reasons the Jewish people found themselves in their predicament. You'll notice that he never appeals for God's help based on how good Israel has been, nor does he speak as though God were being unfair to his people. He understood why all these things were happening in the first place. But but what he's really doing in this psalm is he's asking God why they're going on still. This isn't a psalm about why we got into the mess that we're in. This is a psalm about how long it will be until God delivers us from it. So even if the mess is our own fault and is self-made, the psalmist still has the same questions. How long, Lord, until you, you bring your people out of the mire and set their feet upon a rock and bring praise to your name because of it? How long until you revive your people? How long until you take back the honor of your great name? How long until you silence those who are reproaching you? How long until you forgive our sins and show us your smile once more? Those are legitimate questions, I think. Lord, we've gotten ourselves into a mess. And we know that you have every right, verse 1, to be angry with us. We have needed your chastisement and your discipline. But, oh, Lord, it stings so badly. And more than that, we're languishing beneath it. And the longer we languish beneath it, and the longer we're weak, and the longer we're fragile, and the longer we're not what we should be, and the longer we're ineffective as your people, the more, verse 18, your name suffers. The longer your sanctuary sits desolate, verse 7, the more your name suffers. So, verse 2, he says, remember your congregation which you have purchased of old. He says, verse 3, turn your footsteps toward the perpetual ruins. Verse 19, do not deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your afflicted forever. Verse 22, arise, O God, and plead your own cause. He's not afraid though the mess has been made by Israel herself to ask God to deliver Israel from it. So what we have in this psalm, I think, is essentially this. 
in the whys and the how longs and the cries for mercy of Psalm 74, we have a kind of template for how we ought to pray when we or the church at large is under the discipline of God. In the whys and the how longs and the cries for help, we have a paradigm, a pattern for how we ought to pray when we or the church at large finds itself under the discipline of God. It's clear that that's where Israel was in this psalm. They were under the discipline of God because of their sins. That's why Babylon was wreaking havoc. And it's equally clear from the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament and then the book of Hebrews in the New that we should not be surprised if we sometimes find ourselves under the Lord's discipline. He's our Father, right? And whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. None of us are without sin, are we? But if we're children of God, just like being children of our parents, sometimes we're going to be corrected. Sometimes it's going to hurt. Some of us may be there right now. And many of us maybe ought to be more aware of the Lord's fatherly discipline than we sometimes are. Bad things happen, and sometimes we just chalk them up to chance. Or sometimes we say, well, I know that the Lord works all things together for good, and that's true. But sometimes the way the Lord is working this thing for good is staying on our backside so that we won't go back to the same place again. Don't forget that when difficulty comes. Not all difficulty is the Lord's discipline. Maybe not even most difficulty is the Lord's discipline. But those whom the Lord loves, he does discipline. So we could find ourselves in difficulty like the Israelites because of some sin, some sin or some rebellion or some foolishness. And yet Psalm 74 reminds us that in the midst of that, underneath that discipline, there is a way to pray for mercy, even when your troubles are your own fault. After all, God does not spank his children out of vengeance or malice or a sense of payback. He disciplines us because he loves us and wants us to grow. And a father who loves us and wants us to grow is always willing to relent when the scourging has gone far enough and when the child has learned what the sting was intended to teach. So it's right to ask God for mercy, even when he is spanking you, as it were. And Psalm 74 gives us a paradigm for how to do that. And I want you to notice three simple things, three parts to the psalmist's prayer underneath the discipline of God. First, notice very simply that he requested He requested. He made a request of God. And we see it, first of all, in verses 2 and 3. Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance, and this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Turn your footsteps toward the perpetual ruins. He requested the Lord's help and deliverance. And then the same thing beginning in verse 18. Remember this, O Lord, that the enemy is reviled and a foolish people has spurned your name. Do not deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your afflicted forever. Consider the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the oppressed return dishonored. Let the afflicted and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, and plead your own cause, and so on. Very simply, when the psalmist and his people were under God's discipline, he requested mercy. He requested help. 
He requested the staying of God's hand. He prayed when under the discipline of God. Now, as I've said over and over again in the Psalms, that may sound obvious. When you're in trouble, pray. But as I've said over and over again the Psalms, in the Psalms, and I say this to myself more than anybody else, how often, when we know we ought to pray, do we actually fail to do it? How often do we fret instead of praying? Or start planning and scheming instead of praying? Or get on the phone and talk to someone else who we think can help us instead of praying? Or just give up instead of praying? Instead of getting on our knees and begging God for help? whether it's something little like losing your keys or something big like a disease in your heart. We often know that we should pray and fail to do it, don't we? And we're even more tempted probably to bypass prayer when, as in Psalm 74, we realize that the predicament we're in is our own fault. When we've gotten ourselves into the mess, we may say to ourselves, you know, there's no sense in praying about this. God is the one who's bringing about the difficulty, and it's my own fault. So he doesn't want to hear about this from me, asking his intervention. I'll just have to wait it out until he's done doing what he has to do. But that's not what the psalmist thought about the Lord and his discipline, is it? Yes, he knew that Israel was in this predicament because of their own sin. He knew that God was angry, verse 1, and that they were getting what they had coming to them. But that didn't mean in the psalmist's mind that God was not still compassionate and that God wouldn't hear their groans and that God wouldn't relent of the discipline if they begged his mercy. If that were the kind of God we had, a God who will not put down his rod until he has exacted every last ounce of punishment upon us, we, none of us, would have ever been saved in the first place, would we? Because doesn't the gospel teach that God is a a relenting God, a forgiving God, a God who is willing to stay his hand and not reward us according to our iniquities. That's not only true on the front end of the gospel, but it's even true once we're in the family and we need to be chastised for our wandering from the Lord. God is a relenting God. Who knows? Joel said in the midst of that great plague of locusts, that God sent to discipline his people, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. That's precisely what the psalmist is saying with all of his requests for deliverance in Psalm 74. Who knows when God will see fit to end our suffering? Who knows when God will put the rod down? Who knows when God in his mercy will deliver us from this mess that we've made. And so he prayed that God would. God, you're angry with us, and for good reason, but verse 19, do not forget the life of your afflicted forever. And I submit to you that you can pray that way too. Learn your lesson, yes. Admit your faults, yes. Repent of your sin, yes. But also, when you've done those things, request that the Lord might stay his hand. And who knows whether he might do it. So that's the first thing the psalmist did in the days of God's discipline. Very simply, he requested mercy. But then notice also that he remembered as well. He remembered. One of the reasons the psalmist had confidence to pray beneath God's discipline is because he remembered how God had worked to deliver his people in times of old. God's power 
in the past had given him confidence to pray for God's power in the present. Isn't that what we learn in verses 12 through 17 there? It seems to be a bit of an interlude in, in the flow of the psalm there, doesn't there? And what's happening is he's just finished saying, why aren't you helping us? Why, why do you withdraw your hand from us, Lord? And then he catches himself and he says, yet, verse 12, God is my king from of old who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. And he starts to recount in his mind the way the Lord brought his people through the Red Sea and out of the land of Egypt. And then he goes on towards the end of that passage uh, in verses 16 and 17 and remembers how the Lord created the earth in power. And it's on the strength of these remembrances of God's power in days gone by that the psalmist is able now to pray for God's power, beginning in verse 18, in the present struggles. And I suggest to you that this is a good strategy. It's one that we've noticed previously in this book of Psalms, that we remember how God has worked in the past and therefore gain confidence to pray that he'll do it again in the present and in the future. It's a good strategy. Remember how God has worked in the past and it will give you confidence to pray in the present. For instance, if you sense that you're under the discipline of God and you find it difficult to pray that God would take you out of your self-made mess, perhaps it would do you good to remember the very period in history about which we're reading tonight. The people of God in Psalm 74 were in a self-made mess too, weren't they? They were under God's discipline too. They were exiled in Babylon. Their homeland was in ruin, ruins. The temple sacrifices had been shut down. The word of God was rare. But the psalmist prayed the very kind of prayer that you might be reluctant to pray. He said, God, this is our fault, but deliver us from the repercussions of it anyway. And in the book of Ezra, if I can just read to you from a moment, in the book of, for a moment, in the book of Ezra, as we saw last winter, God did precisely what the psalmist asked him to do in Psalm 74. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a freewill offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods." 
And then in chapter 3, verse 8, we read about how they began building and they laid the foundation of the temple and the people praised the Lord. And the point is, God did exactly what the psalmist requested of him to do here. Perhaps not as quickly as the psalmist may have hoped, but God did it. Everything that was wrong, God began to restore. The people were taken out of their lands. Cyrus sent them back. The temple was torn down. Cyrus said, rebuild it and we'll pay for it. Nebuchadnezzar had stolen the things from the temple and Cyrus said, we're going to get those out of the treasury and we're going to send them back. God did exactly what the psalmist asked him to do. And remembering, you yourself, remembering how God worked on behalf of his people in the past will gain hope to pray in the present that God will hear your prayers as well, just like he did in Psalm 74. You might also gain strength by remembering the works of God that are much closer at hand. It's best to go back to the works of God in the Bible because there you're sure about what God was doing. But but perhaps also there have been very clear times in your life where you've seen God marvelously intervene for your help. And if you can remember how he worked then, you'll be strengthened to pray for his working now. The psalmist requested And the psalmist remembered. And of course, there's no more mighty working of God that is worth remembering than his work on the cross. If ever you have any doubt that God is willing to hear your prayers, that he's willing to relent concerning your sins, that he's willing to reward you far better than your iniquities deserve, remember the cross where God's own son, by the Father's decree, Absorb the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. God's desire is not, Psalm 74, 1, to remain angry with you forever. If that were his heartbeat, he'd never have sent his son to die in the first place, the righteous for the unrighteous, becoming sin on our behalf, bearing our sins in his body on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God never would have done that if his heartbeat were to leave you languishing in the mess. No. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In other words, if God in the past was willing to go so far as to give us even his own son, then in the present he won't withhold anything else that would be good for us. That's the logic of, Psalm, uh, of Romans 8.32, and the logic in Romans 8.32 is the same as the logic we see here in Psalm 74 that the psalmist employs. If God has been so willing to deliver me in the past, even when my troubles were of my own making, then surely I must not be ashamed to ask him to do it again. So then, even beneath God's discipline, the psalmist requested the Lord's mercy, and he requested because he remembered the Lord's deliverance in times of old. And then finally, I want you to notice that the psalmist not only requested and remembered, but the psalmist reminded. He reminded. Remember I told you early on that the motivation of this prayer in Psalm 74 wasn't a selfish motivation. Now it's true, the psalmist didn't want to suffer any longer, nor would any of us if placed in his circumstances. But the primary tenor of his request for deliverance is not mainly about self-preservation, but about the honor of God. Lord, we deserve all the heartache we're getting. 
But the more the Babylonians oppress us, Lord, the further we sink into the mire, Lord, the more inconsequential we become, Lord, the more your name is blasphemed, and the more the growth of your kingdom is stunted, and the more your fame is aligned. That's the tenor of these requests. Lord, for your own sake, deliver your people so that the nations won't continue to speak ill of you and blaspheme you and belittle you. And that's what I mean by the psalmist's reminders. All through this psalm, he reminds God that God's own honor is at stake in the well-being of his people. Just listen to a couple of places. Verse 18, remember this, O Lord, that the enemy has reviled and a foolish people has spurned your name. Your name. Verse 22, arise, O God, and plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you all day long. Do not forget the voice of your adversaries, the uproar of those who rise against you. What he's saying is, God, they're not just blaspheming us, they're blaspheming you. By persecuting us, they're persecuting you. You remember this, it was the same thing with Saul. Saul was persecuting the people of God, but what did Jesus say to him? Why are you persecuting me? When God's people suffer, when God's people are blasphemed and cursed and belittled, God is as well. That's how closely he has attached himself with us. That's amazing that he would attach himself that closely with us that when something bad happens to us, something bad happens to him. And that's what the psalmist is saying. They're not just blaspheming us. They're blaspheming you. So, verse 22, arise, O God, and plead your own cause. Do you hear it? Your own cause, God's name and his cause, verse 22, are inextricably bound up with the welfare of his people, his congregation, verse 2, which he has purchased from of old. When they do well, God's name is praised. When they sin or they struggle or men rise up to blaspheme them, then God's name is dragged through the mud as well. And the psalmist reminds God of these things and pleads that God would deliver them for his own name's sake. Psalm 74 is not a psalm that says, God, I can't take this anymore. Though there are times when I think we may legitimately say that to God. But Psalm 74 is not so much about what you and I can endure, but about whether God will endure the continual blaspheming of his name that comes when his people are the tail and not the head. And I suggest to you that we learn to pray this way, that we learn to remind the Lord of this. Not that he doesn't know, but that he loves to hear that we are concerned about his name. Lord, for your own name's sake, don't leave your people in the mud. Deliver us so that you may be praised. Arise, O God, and plead your own cause. And then notice one other thing of which the psalmist reminds the Lord. Not only to plead his own cause, but he also reminds him, verses 19 and 20, of his own covenant. Do not deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your afflicted forever. Consider the covenant. Consider the covenant. Remember the promise that you made to your people. In other words, Lord, you promised not to forsake your people. 
You promised to forgive our sins. You promised not to reward us according to our iniquities. You promised to make us a great nation for your namesake. You promised to make us a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That was your covenant with us. And though we have failed to live up to our end of the bargain, Lord, show yourself strong to keep your end. Consider the covenant. If for no other reason for hearing our prayers, God, consider the covenant. You you promised us. Hold fast to your word. He reminds God of his covenant. And this is what we must do as well when we find that we have fallen again into sin. What are we going to plead when we come to the Lord in prayer? Are we going to ask him to deliver us from our self-made pig pens based on how well we've kept our end of the bargain? Is that how it's going to work? If that's what we had to pray, we'd have not a leg to stand on, would we? Are we going to try and pretend when we're suffering that we deserve better treatment than the Lord is doling out to us? Both he and we know that that's not the case, is it? So what are we going to plead with the Lord? How can we possibly pray for Psalm 74 kind of deliverance when we know that our troubles are of our own making? Our only hope is to say, consider the covenant. Remember what you promised. Remember that you promised to do us good in spite of our sins. Remember the blood that was shed on our behalf. Remember that you came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Consider the covenant and do us good in spite of ourselves, simply because you're a keeper of your word. That's what we mean, essentially, when we add the words in Jesus' name to our prayers. That's what we ought to mean, anyway. Lord, hear me, not because of me, not because I deserve to be heard, but hear me because of the covenant you have made with me through your Son. Consider that covenant, Father. Consider the cross and hear me for that reason. Not because of anything in me that merits your help. Can you pray like that? Asking God to do you good, not because you've kept your end of the bargain, but because he always keeps his. Do you trust him like that? There's no other way to pray. Even if you're under the manifest blessing of God, there's no other way to pray. You can never come to God on the strength of anything but His faithfulness to you, His remembering of His covenant. If you're ever to have hope or or confidence to pray, and if you're ever to have hope and confidence to pray, especially when you know that you've done wrong and you're under His discipline, you must learn to pray in the spirit of Psalm 74, 20. God, you've been angry with me, and I deserve it. I deserve whatever discipline you should dole out, and I deserve a hundredfold more. But, oh, Lord, consider the covenant. Remember Jesus. Remember your love to me in spite of my sin. And do not, verse 19, forget the life of your afflicted forever.